Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. But we're just down the road today. We're at Barbara King Solvers. All of you know Barbara King Solvers. So we're just delighted to have her on Poets and Writers today. So Barbara, as we like to ask around the valley, where are you from? I'm from hereabouts, to be honest. I uh, I grew up in Kentucky over on the other side of the mountains. And I tried out living other places for, you know, a few lost decades of my life. And I knew always I had to get back to the mountains. And um, I came to Emory and Henry on a, as a visiting, one week visiting writer fellowship. And look at here, I'm still here. Um, I found out when I came here as a visiting writer that this is the home place of King Solvers. The f- yeah, the f- the uh, the first um, public reading I gave out in the community had this whole row of elderly ladies on the front, and afterwards they just stormed right up to me and said, "We're all King Solvers," and I said, "Get out of here! You can't be King Solvers. I'm accustomed to you know owning this name, being the only one in the phone book." I said, "What do you mean you're King Solvers?" And they said, "Honey." It used to be you could not walk around here without stepping on a king solver. And it turns out they're right. This is uh, seven generations of my family come from Washington County. Well, I know there are a number of them around Bristol. And, uh, and we have a street named after us, King Solver Street. Did you a, know that? That's what I was thinking. It is two full blocks long. Well, and you started out in Kentucky, though, and you, yeah. and you then you wound up in Tucson, Arizona. And you spent about 20 years there. Yeah, I kind of yeah. got stuck. I, I'll i tell you, I mean, seriously, after two decades of living in Tucson, which, of course, is a beautiful place, I had great friends there. I learned a whole lot about America, living that close to the border, kind of watching what one country will do to another, um, you know, that kind of interaction so I don't begrudge my time in in Tucson, Arizona. It was it was formative for me. I became an adult there. I became a writer there. Um, to, and also, you worked for a newspaper there, right? Well, I worked as a freelancer. I went to graduate school there. Um, it wasn't the reason I moved to Tucson, but I while I was there, I figured why not get you know an advanced degree. So I did in uh, ecology and evolutionary biology, and my first job after grad school was as a science writer. And then I became a freelance writer. I worked for, initially I did mostly science writing. Then I kind of moved into the arts beat. I covered um, actually kind of anything. And then I became a, a, a stringer for several national magazines and newspapers. And yeah, I just fell into freelance writing because as hard as I had tried throughout my college and graduate school years to be a scientist. And I mean, I still think of myself mm-hmm. as a scientist. Really, what I am is a writer. It mm-hmm. just, it just, I didn't go, I didn't ever think I was going to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was an option growing up. But being a writer came and found me. Yes, and you you started out, one time you studied music, right? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that was sort of, I mean, you could say that my life has been a long series of fortunate accidents. And that was one. I got to go to college on a piano scholarship. Mm -hmm. I just took it because it was a scholarship. 
Um, but as soon as I got to DePaul University, uh, <laughs> I quickly understood that there are about, you know, 10 or 11 job openings for concert pianists in the, in the, in the country, if not the world. And I wasn't 10 or 11 on the list. I wasn't even, you know, 10,000 on the list. That wasn't going to work out. So I, I switched over to being a biology major. Biology at DePaul, right? Right, DePaul yes, University, yes, yes. Well, middle of Indiana. Which leads me into your books. And, of course, you wrote Bean Trees. That was your first book, Bean Trees, right? It was my first novel, uh-huh, and, and my first book to be published, yes, The Bean Trees, which was in, uh, it was published in 1980. Eight. And talk a little bit about bean trees. Okay. I wrote that um, while I was living in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I had been, really all my life, I'd been writing poems and stories. It's just something I did, you know, in private. I never shared those with anybody because, as I mentioned, I was not going to be a writer. I just loved to write. And I kept doing that in Tucson, and I kept noticing different kinds of people, interesting people around this park where I lived, which the local kids called Dog Do Park, um, because it was, <laughs> right. because it was. And, um, you know, I just, as I said, I learned a lot living in a border town. Um, I learned, I, I, it was, this was a working class neighborhood. You know, I, I met a lot of, you know, like single parents trying to hold it together, a lot of elderly people, just people living on the edge of of getting by. And I met refugees uh, who had come from other countries running for their lives, and I heard their stories. And I just started putting all these stories together, but, um, I mean, not real people, but People I imagined based on, you know, these these kind new sort of categories of people I was meeting. And the story didn't have a voice. Um, it just I was I was still trying to find my voice and still trying to kind of hide my Kentucky accent because mm-hmm. yes. I got I got that shamed out of me yeah. when I went to college. Mm-hmm. I I I I sort of swallowed my my diphthongs and tried to sound like a cosmopolitan person who isn't from anywhere and uh that's kind of what my writing sounded like too like it didn't come from anywhere and it wasn't very interesting it was it would no it was just voice it was just without grounding it had no roots anywhere because i i was trying to deny my my background it had been so mocked and so ridiculed and anyway anybody that lives around here knows what i'm talking about um you know, the minute you say holler yeah. or I reckon, yeah. they want to slap a straw hat on you and mm-hmm. and laugh, ha-ha. So yeah. that's the kind of talk I was trying to erase from my, not just from my vocal cords, but my psyche. I'd been doing this for years, but in Tucson, somehow or other, I found that voice and I I gave it to a narrator named Taylor Greer who came in a car, in a broken down car from Kentucky into this neighborhood and told the story and it just took off. And that was my first novel, The Bean Trees. Yes. And I didn't realize you had written was about the strikes out in Arizona, the mine strike. Right. Uh, Holding the line. Um, it was a nonfiction book. It's a, it's an oral history. That's actually my first book. I was working, as I mentioned, as a journalist, um, as a stringer, and I was sent out week after week to cover this mine strike, which went on for a year, and it was very um, 
The governor marched the National Guard into the town to shut down these picket lines, which were being held by women. That's the name, the subtitle of my book, "Holding the Line." In women, copper mines. W- yeah, copper mines. It was a, it was a, it was a really, um, it, it was really a long and confrontational strike. All the men had to leave town because there was no other employment while they were on on the strike. So the women held the line. So I went out every week in my little pickup truck and talked to these women about their lives and how their lives had changed, how they used to think of themselves as housewives. Now they were standing up to the National Guard. I uh, I went through a lot with these women, including tear gas, including, you know, sort of running from, from rubber bullets. And they got so used to me being around that uh, when I, whenever I'd show up, they'd say, here comes that gal that's writing the book about us. <laughs> and yeah, so I yeah, thought, sure. mm, I guess yeah, I, yeah. I have to do that now. So I did. That was my first book before The Bean Trees. Um, it was, well, it was a book proposal and several chapters, which nobody wanted to publish. Um, but after The Bean Trees was published, then that, yeah. then that was, that was published, uh, I think less than a year after the bean trees, it came out from uh, a different press, Cornell University Press, and then um, all my other books since then have been uh, with Harper Collins, my original publisher, which is pretty amazing to be with one publisher for thirty-five years. Uh, I have a you know a great a well, great publisher. You went from music to biology, and yeah. one of my favorite books of yours is Prodigal Summer. Thank you. I thought, wow, this woman really understands nature and life, and yes, absolutely. sir, I and, do, <laughs> and, and, and mating, and and right yes. reproduction. And, uh, That's what it's all about. <laughs> well, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I was a graduate student studying ecology and evolutionary biology, I was working on a dissertation that I thought was really interesting. It was. Um, it was about uh, sociality, sort of the, the genetics of social behavior and the genetics of altruism, which I still think is a really interesting subject. But I had this kind of dark night of the soul one night when I was working on my dissertation. I just sat and counted to myself the number of people on the entire planet who would be interested or able to read this dissertation when I finished. And I came up with 11 that was my audience. And I thought, you know what? I bet I can do better than that. Absolutely. I bet I could I could aim for like 75 or 80 readers. Um and I just really made that decision that I think I think that ecological principles and these biological principles are so interesting and nobody's really explaining them to non-scientists. So I bet I could do that in more accessible ways. And as I said, I began as a science writer for, for sure. lay readers. But yeah. after I had developed, yeah. you know, or sort of fell into, yeah. luckily, this career as a, as, a, as a novelist, I thought, I bet I could write a novel that pulls together about four or five of the most important principles of ecology. And I bet I could explain mm-hmm. them in English language, not math, you know, not formulas, but in in poetic language, sort of told through characters and interactions, I bet I could, I bet I could put these um, principles into a novel and nobody would even know that they're learning biology. Well, they certainly are. And I learned some biology and also learned to 
some other things about life and romance. I'm not a fiction reader in general, uh-huh. but I'll tell you, I read just this avidly and every word of it, and I thought you fleshed it out and you brought it in, and I thought you went from the young couple to the other couple who he got killed on the tractor. Right, right. And then you went to the older couple, and I identified with all of them. Now I identify with Garrett, I think his name was. <laughs> the old codger. Yeah, you said because he's closing in on 80, and I'm closing in on 80. And, Here you are. And I, and I love those relationships, and it's very beautiful. And also, I know something about mountain people having grown up on the Rhone. Mm-hmm. If you know where Rhone Mountain sure is, all around uh-huh. Mitchell sure. County sure, and sure. so forth. But you say in the book, and uh, folks, this is Poets and Writers. We have Barbara King Sauber on today. And I have her book in my hand, uh, Prodigal Summer. And prodigal, that means abundant, right? Yes, yes it, does, it does not mean coming back home, even though that's what everybody thinks it means. Uh, it does not. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means extravagant. It means abundant. Yeah, like summer. Summer just like, it gives you flowers, it gives you fruits. It's just there's so much life to summer. And so, yes, this is the prodigal summer. Well, here's something that caught my eye. You say cocky, she thought. This is when she meets the She's young... just met Eddie Bondo, yes, Ed, the heartthrob Eddie yeah, Bondo. Yeah. Cocky, she thought, or cocked rather like a rifle ready to go off. What would I need your name for? You fiction to give me a story I t- want to tell later, she asked quietly. It was a tactic learned from her father and a way of mountain people in general to be quiet when most agitated. Yep. And that, I can tell you, you nailed that. Yes, Because sir. I had an Uncle Henry that I was named for, and he was a very good fighter, and he was a real talker. But they said, be careful when Uncle Henry gets real quiet. Betcha. Yeah. Uh, yep, that's uh, that's something I learned growing up, too. Be when when Uncle Henry, when when Dad, when whoever, when Papa gets quiet, watch out. Well, you're a mountain woman, Barbara King Solver. You know, uh, do do you hear me getting quiet now? (laughs) (laughs) I think I think I think we need to talk about a different book. Okay, (laughs) now we're going to talk. You're on your own book tour, if you're right. I am. uh, I've I've been on a book tour. Uh, uh, an airplane a day for th- three weeks, and it was, um, it was so amazing and heartwarming to me to go all over the country and see big, you know, concert halls full of readers. Not just that they're my readers. I mean, of course, I appreciate that, but that people are reading books and that they care about books. Um, as you know, as I'm sure. Uh, you are heartwarmed too, um, as the creator of the show. So um, I'm really, I'm really excited and pleased about the, you know, the the gigantic reception to this book because it's Appalachian, and as an Appalachian writer, it's so important to me to represent this region in a way that it does not get widely represented. I mean, you know, we all know this. We're accustomed to the condescension of outsiders. Um, If we look for ourselves in entertainment media, you know, on TV, in the news, um, anywhere in the movies, it's, if we show up at all, it's most likely to be a, Mm -hmm. a, you know, a a bad joke, a hillbilly joke, or a poverty documentary. And so I wanted to write something else. Um, I started 
with the hope of trying to explore the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. and what it has done to this region, you know, this generation of kids we have coming up here who have been, who've, whose lives have been really blown up by this awful thing that happened to us. And uh, I don't think really people understand very well that this wasn't a choice. This wasn't like bad parents making bad choices or, you know, sort of whatever, you know, the sort of the prejudices are against addicted people, that this is, so, this is part of a bigger story of structural poverty, of sort of outsiders exploiting this region um, and making money off of this region. I wanted to tell that story, but of course that sounds really dark, perhaps even boring. So, um, what I have to do, just like, you know, just the way I disguised uh, biological principles in that in that book you mentioned earlier, in a story, um, I, I, I made this into a story of characters and families, ecosystems of characters that tell you the story of who we really are. We're not just one kind of pitiful person here. We are communities of people. So we, yes, we have um, Demon, as as he's nicknamed, Demon Copperhead is the narrator and uh, the uh, protagonist of this story. He's a little boy who gets, you know, abandoned, orphaned by by the opioid epidemic. But he's surrounded by different kinds of people. He has his dangerous friends. He has his memo, not his, but the next door neighbor who mm -hmm. is like everybody's memo. He has Aunt June, the, um, you know, sort of the Wonder Woman nurse who's looking out after everybody. I really wanted people to see that life is so complex here and so interesting and rich. I mean, not rich in money, but rich in tradition and language and story. And that most of all, we're people made out of community. We depend on each other and we know it and we're not ashamed of it. Um, these are things that I wanted to tell a, a wider readership. And so I'm really happy that it's getting out there. Well, in Demon Copperhead, you talk about in your intro, you talk about Charles Dickens and how you came to, you know, you were over there. Tell a little bit about that. Well, I was, I start, I begin a novel by, I begin a novel with a question, uh, some big thing that's worrying me, that's keeping me awake at night that I really want to explore because it needs to be a subject that's worth, you know, I mean, it takes years to write a novel. So I want it to be worth my time. And when I'm done, I want it to be worth your time. So this question of the opioid epidemic, what it has done to us, what is the story for these kids? What is, what is their hope? What do they need? What do we all need to know? Um, I was trying for a couple of years to just break into that story. How can I tell it that won't, you know, turn people off? And I, I came up with nothing. I did not have an idea for two years. And, um, I was at that time, um, at the end of that two years, well, I had been writing another book. I always have one novel on the back burner while I'm writing something else. So I was on book tour for the previous novel, um, unsheltered. And at the end of that book tour, you know, I was over in the UK because I have to do book tour over there after here. And I was very tired. And I had a weekend to kill before I could fly home. So I booked myself into this, at this 
Old Country Inn, which was the actual home of Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's where he wrote um, David Copperfield. So um, to my surprise, it was still a very Charles Dickensy kind of place. Uh, they still had his, his desk in his office and his stuff lying around, manuscripts and everything. And they said, you know, I was the only, there were no other guests. And so they said, sure, make yourself at home. If you want to sit at Charles Dickens's desk, you can do that, lady. Um, and I did. And I sat there and I just, it was dark and stormy. And I looked out at the ocean thinking, here he sat writing David Copperfield, and what was he writing about? Mm-hmm. He was writing about orphans, mm-hmm. abandoned kids, structural poverty, and what it does. And I'm sure that his contemporaries, you know, the polite Victorians, they didn't want to hear this story either, but you know what? He told it anyway. And I just felt him talking to me, saying, look, look, this can be done. You have to do it. And this is really the most kind of still remarkable thing to me about that conversation I had with him in his office. He gave me direct instructions. He said, you, you let the kid tell the story. You, well, he said child. He didn't say kid. You let the child tell the story. And that was it. I knew. Uh, I would write my own David Copperfield set in my own place and time, and right then and there on that desk, I started writing. I had this kid just came to me, this demon, this demon, this copper-headed kid with, you know, his father's red hair and and the, and, and and his whole attitude and his resilience and his anger, and the story just started to roll. Demon Copperhead. I know all of you want to pick up a copy of that, and I want to ask you, Demon Copperhead. Now, talk a little bit about. That name, how you came up with that? Well, my titles always have to have a, a little bit mm-hmm. of like cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance, mm-hmm. Uh, like words that are arguing with each other, or s- something about it that just like makes you look twice. You know, like the bean trees. There aren't really bean trees. You know, pigs in heaven. Um, and and as a as a consequence, people always get my titles wrong. Um, I, I, you know, like a nickel for every time somebody's asked me about pigs in a blanket or <laughs> or the bean fields. People get them wrong, but that's okay. That's a compliment to me because it means I've like I've done something unusual yeah. with words here that makes you look twice. So so Copperhead. Well, Copper. You know, I yeah. thought right away I'm gonna I'm gonna make my own version of David Copperfield. And so Copperhead uh, came right to me as a redheaded kid. He has interesting, an interesting look to him. He has dark skin, green eyes, and red hair, just like his father. Um, so they're going to call him Copperhead, um, which is also, of course, a very poisonous snake. And I, I, I expected a little pushback from my publisher. A lot of, a lot of people are afraid of snakes, and I, I told him right away, um, here's the title. Yeah, as if Copperhead isn't enough. We'll just add demon to it. Um, Double scary. And I said, you don't have to put a snake on the cover of the book if you don't really want to. But you know what? They did. It's just kind of buried in a whole lot of other stuff. You know, you have to look at it for a while. And then, oh, oh, thank you. Um, So, yes, this kid 
Um, his name, his given name is Damon, but of course he, he gets called demon because that's what we do around here, right? Uh, people get nicknames, especially men. You like, if you have male relatives, I guarantee you they're going by a nickname Mm -hmm. and, and if you notice these nicknames are never kind, they're like stubby or, 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 or stinky. I know a stinky or, uh. Uh, maggot maggot (laughs) yeah and it's it and it's like this but this becomes the guy's name i mean this is real life right if you look at the open the bristol herald courier and look at the obituaries page and you'll see emmett stinky blevins (laughs) that's like that that's how he's identified that's his name toby whatever so um shorty so i figured this would be a fun way to bring a lot of a lot of the characters of David Copperfield become characters in my novel. It was really fun and and hard. Both of those things are kind of hard. Difficulty is catnip to me as a writer. Can I really do this? Can I bring this plot and these characters into a sort of a translation of our modern times? And one of the things that made that easy to bring these really funny, interesting. Um, Dickensian names of characters mm-hmm. like Steerforth and Murdstone um, into my novel is that I could use nicknames. So Steerforth becomes fast forward. He's a he's a football hero and right. a, a a dangerous friend. And Murdstone becomes, of course, Stoner in my novel, the um, the, the the mean stepfather. And um, so it's really an interesting challenge, something I'd never, ever done before, uh, to really sort of take the, the the skeleton of a novel already written and flesh it out with all new material that's completely rele- irrelevant to, you know, to our modern times and to the story I wanted to tell. Oh. But, but you know, yeah. Dickens, using Dickens' yeah. plot, you cannot go wrong. The man knows plot. Well, and you, your books give us hope, and I, I've loved your es- essays over the years also. But this book, I will not give the ending of it. You so better not. not. But it has, a, <laughs> it has a positive twist. There's resilience in, in the culture. And There's resilience in the culture and in this kid. Yeah, he's um, he, he doesn't know it. Um, he, when, when a counselor, a guidance counselor, you know, first he's come to a new school and, uh, the guidance counselor looks at his, you know, lengthy files and he says, well, one thing I know about you, young man, is you are resilient. And demon, poor demon says, he thinks that's a diagnosis. He said, are you going to give me meds for that? I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I can relate to it. He expects nothing good from adults because they don't come through for him. But he builds, but he's a survivor. He has his, his guys, his friends. He finds his way. And that's what I wanted to, to, to sort of really show in this, in this narrator and in this narration is the grit and the hope and the fact that for, for a lot of us in this place that has gotten nothing but bad deals for hundreds of years, there's survival and there's joy. 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, my mother's, one of her favorite sayings was, where there's a will, there's a way. And, you know, you've heard that growing up. We're talking with Barbara King Soller today about her latest book. And it's a grand book. And I want to, as we wrap it up, we got a great producer here, Ivy Shepherd. want to talk a little bit locally, you know, Harvest Table and your family. Now, you have two daughters. I have uh, two Steve Hopp, your husband. Talk Stephen, a little bit about your family. Stephen Hopp is my husband. He's a, he's a professor at Emory and Henry College. Uh, has been for many, many years. Um, I have two daughters that are grown now, uh, Camille Kingsolver and Lily Kingsolver. They are both married to wonderful men, and they are both they and their and their spouses are, uh, and one of them has two wonderful little boys, and they're all doing really great work uh, in this community, and they love. This, they love the mountains as much as I do, and they identify Southern Appalachia as their home, too, and I'm so proud of them all. So they both live in this area? The, uh, they, yeah. they, they do. They have my, my younger daughter has just uh, moved to Florida for, okay. uh, for two years okay. to, get, to get a graduate degree. Yeah. Yeah. That's Lily. Um, but she says the minute she's done, yeah. she's moving back. She used back. to sell eggs here. You know, she, <laughs> yeah. she grew up on this farm, yeah, with her own chicken and egg business. Uh, she is no longer the chicken girl, but she's getting a degree in environmental science uh, education. And she wants to she wants to devote her life and to, to, these, is, to these uh, mountains. And Camille is a is a th- is a therapist. Uh huh. She's a clinical mental health therapist. Gave you some therapist. advice on the book, and she was yeah. a great resource to me in sort of helping me understand the foster care system, the social networks, and how how thinly spread they are, and how little, how few resources we are putting into uh, these kids who really need so much more. Barbara Kingsauer, thank you so much for having us here in the valley at your home here with the sheep. And so it's truly a pleasure to be with you. And I want to thank Ivy Shepard for all of her work. Thank you, Barbara Kingsauer. Any closing comments? Um, thanks for what you do. Thanks for your interest, y'all. This is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stare still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening.